What's going on, everybody? Thanks for taking the time to stop in for another episode of the Warrior Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Stu Blackwell, and today I've got an absolutely badass episode for you talking about the final two infantry values. But we're going to take a little bit of a different approach today. I've got two very different quote-unquote guest speakers that are going to help educate us on what it really means to be a warrior and a leader. And their stories are very near and dear to me because they've shaped my life in such profound ways. Now, as we tell their stories, I'd like for you to listen to their actions. Listen to what they tell you about the infantry values and what we've been discussing. So if this is your first time listening, thanks for coming in. You know, Go back, start from episode one. Hear everything that we've been talking about. It's like a house. We've been building it for a while now. We're going to put the roof on that bitch today. Okay? Now, these two titans embody everything that we've been discussing. They bring, they bring it all full circle. And the beauty of it is that we have them to show us the power of belief and desire as well. Now, I, I can't wait any longer. Okay? So, let's get right down to it. Um, the, the first warrior that we're going to bring in is none other than Hannibal. Now, not to be confused with the cannibalistic serial killer from Silence of the Lambs. Okay? As much as I value physical dominance and savagery, uh, eating people is, is where I draw the line. There's plenty of animals to go around for everyone. So if you want to dice up your roommate or your boss while you listen to Phil Collins or track down serial killers that make skin suits out of their victims, go watch Silence of the Lambs or American Psycho. Wonderful flicks, by the way. But we'll cover all that in a later episode. Today, however, proficiency and example take center stage as the remaining infantry values. And while history is full of both great and terrible leaders, only a few are even in the same league as Hannibal Barca. Now, as we go into a brief overview of his life, and I stress brief, I want you to think about childhood in America. Think about how you were raised, okay? How we bring up our kids, the situations that we shelter them from, and the lessons that we teach them, and, and, and the monumental effect that has on their development, okay? You got it? So, as we turn the clock back over 2,000 years, we arrive at a place called New Carthage, which is today known as Cartagena in southeastern Spain. It's around 237 BC, and our hero, Hannibal, has just arrived with his father, Hamilcar, who is charged with expanding the colony. Now, prior to crossing the Mediterranean, Hamilcar commanded Carthaginian forces in the First Punic War against Rome, who ended up winning. Rome is the other ascending power in the Mediterranean at the time, and the loss was especially bitter for Hamilcar, who did the best that he could, but was nonetheless hamstrung by politics. Kind of funny how that just keeps repeating itself throughout history, right? So he takes his nine-year-old son, Hannibal, and he has him swear an oath of eternal hatred towards Rome before they depart. And now that they had arrived, Hannibal would have the opportunity to develop under the watchful eye of his father until the age of 17. 
His childhood and his teenage years were spent in a martial environment, tagging along with dad in the army on campaigns of expansion and conquest. Disciplined learning, shared hardship and adversity, focused belief, and eventually combat experience were his constant companions. Hannibal saw from a very young age what it was to be a warrior, to learn the infantry trade, and consistently honed the skills needed for combat. But what he also learned was how to lead, and from one of the best to ever do it. Now, Hamilcar was killed in battle, leaving command to his son-in-law, who was also killed years later. And it's at this point that something highly unusual for that time happens. Succession of command, you know, when one commander is killed and another has to take over, that's usually well entrenched at this time based on hereditary order. You know, father to the next eldest in the family line, so on and so forth. It's very different from our practice in today's military where it's based on who is in position to take charge in the moment when a commander is killed. So pause the timeline for a brief second. Think about the qualities that someone has to have in order to be elected to command of a massive force like Hannibal was. Because that's what happened. They chose him. So discipline, toughness, lethality, selflessness, and now proficiency. Think about the respect that has to be earned, and in an infantry environment, no less, where shared hardship and adversity are expected from everyone. Think about your professional career. How many times have you had a boss that couldn't perform the job that you were tasked with doing? We've all had that at some point. I mean, the restaurant manager that can't fill in as a cook or a waiter or Hell, we, we probably all had teachers that, that couldn't do anything other than read from a textbook. You know, I remember when I was in high school, we had a, uh, <laughs> we, we had a health teacher that weighed well over 350 pounds. And that's not an exaggeration. The guy practically rolled down the hallways. You know, the, the skin suit making serial killers that we alluded to earlier would have had a fucking field day with this guy. Nobody took him seriously. Now, did you have any respect for that boss that couldn't actually do what they expected you to do? Probably not. But back to Hannibal, who had lived the infantryman's life for 17 years. Drilling and honing the tools of the trade and fighting in Spain. You know, this was all he knew. He didn't have outside distractions. He had a singular focus, and all his efforts were directed by it. His level of proficiency or his ability to apply raw fighting skill was unmatched. And he finally gets his chance at the age of 26. 17 years of patient, diligent, disciplined work. All culminated not in a guaranteed victory, but only in the opportunity to fight the war against Rome that he had committed to all those years ago back in Carthage. Now, proficiency alone doesn't earn respect in the infantry or any, in any walk of life. You know, it's the entire man that is evaluated. And example, 
the last infantry value, is the composite. It is the combination of all the others. It influences a leader's perception and his decision-making. You know, the associated actions like training habits, emotional control and intelligence, skill at arms, they translate themselves into a personal brand that is broadcast to everyone around them. Hannibal wasted no time, and he issued the orders for the invasion of Rome. And he knew it would shake most of his troops to their very core. But he accepted that, and we see it in his invasion plans. You see... At the time, the common belief was that the only way to make it to Rome was by ferrying an army across the Mediterranean. Well, since Hannibal didn't have any ships and Rome controlled the seas, that wasn't really an option. Now, most people quit when they're confronted with this kind of obstacle. Everybody's quit something at some point, so we can all relate to that statement. Whether it's a job or you know a bad friendship that you cut out of your life or, or a sport that you suck at. Hell, I quit the track team in seventh grade because I sucked so bad. I had virtually no natural athleticism. I was a little pudgy too, and after a few weeks of just flopping my gelatinous form over the hurdles, I decided to move on. But Hannibal... Instead of giving up on his sole desire to bring the fight to Rome, decides to do the unthinkable and marches his army north, fighting through hostile mountain tribes in the Pyrenees and the Alps, and crossing two rivers in the dead of winter to land in northern Italy. His commander strongly advised against the strategy, but Hannibal dared for more. The risks were beyond high, and in the six months it took them to cover the distance, his army was reduced by 50%. The lack of food became so dire that his advisors recommended eating the men that froze to death during the march, which is ridiculously ironic considering the silence of the lambs' confusion. But that's what makes Hannibal so different. The concept of impossibility did not exist to him. That word wasn't in his vocabulary. And bear in mind, there's no modern technology to aid in, the, in, in anything. You had to build the bridges to cross the rivers. There's no GPS, and cold weather gear is essentially the skins that you take from the local wildlife. If you get lost in the mountains, you freeze to death or you starve. And the doubtful soldiers in his army were, were focused on all those obstacles. And where they asked, well, how will we eat? How will we stay warm or, or survive the hostile mountain tribes? Hannibal simply said, I will find a way or I will make one. And it's here that we see Hannibal standing on the last peak of the Alps, looking down on the conquest that lay ahead of him with fire in his soul. His plan had worked. And the 20,000 that had survived the brutal march were hardened and starving for victory. The fat had been trimmed, and all that was left was a lethal, cohesive force of true believers, bound by faith in the example of this man who led them. For the next 16 years, Hannibal and his elite corps of warriors would run rampant over the Italian peninsula, 
achieving decisive victories that are still studied and envied to this day. Now, <clears throat> every war that our country's ever fought in is wrought with men whose example demonstrate the infantry values. You know, George Washington, David Hackworth, uh, Dakota Meyer, and Kyle Carpenter, just to name a few. And when we consider this, it becomes clear that the values are timeless. They transcend nationality, religion, race, and all these petty issues that divide people on a daily basis because the urgency and the consequences of war dictate that they must. And it is that environment that adds potency to their examples that isn't seen in other walks of life. Now, I'll preface this next portion of the episode by saying that I struggle with telling this story in a way that actually does it justice. It's one of the most critical phases of my life, and it, it's centered around a man that I actually knew and one that, that still teaches me to this day. So moving forward in time from Hannibal to the year 2009, I had just completed my first deployment, and that came with a, a billet promotion from automatic rifleman to first fire team leader. And I was beyond happy to have earned that, but I was a little skeptical when I found out that a man by the name of Zach Walters would be my squad leader. Now, I didn't know much about the guy. I just noticed that he was different in passing. And as it turns out, he would be the most influential man in my life other than my father. Um... He approached everything from, you know, training to conduct to studying and, and fighting, everything, just very differently. You know, I was used to the loud and overbearing leader type, that, that typical, like, drill instructor sort of heavy hand. And Zach just wasn't that guy. He was, he was confident in his abilities and emotionally intelligent. He understood people, how to interact with them, and his proficiency was second to none. He looked at history and outside militaries to improve what we were doing as a squad. And incorporating these tactics from all over the world added a lethal edge to all of us. He forced us to think in stressful situations. And then on the back end, he challenged our mental process. Just doing something wasn't enough. He wanted us to understand why to do things. So the fact is, he was just on a different plane of leadership. We were just figuring out how to play checkers while he was already three moves ahead in chess. And <laughs> he, he had this sort of youthful fire to it. You know, he, he drove a 1988 Saline Mustang that he had uh, rhino lined. Not just a part of it, like the whole thing was rhino lined. Just because he wanted a car that looked like it came out of the movie Mad Max from the 1970s. You know, and that, that wild man mentality meant that there was never a challenge that was too big, never an obstacle that couldn't be overcome. There was this, this undefinable sort of vigor that, that set him apart from the other squad leaders. And, and looking back on it, outside of my home growing up, he was the, the first example that I had of a 
confident, lethal, happy man. Which may seem like kind of an odd combination, but he showed me that all three of those go hand in hand. Now, most of the time, you know, we just grunt spend so much time together that when we do get time off, we just, we want to be alone or just be with, you know, like one or two close friends or something. But for us, because of the environment that Zach had fostered, our time off was, was spent together. You know, we'd go tear up Jacksonville and, and talk new gear to buy for the squad or try and come up with new tactics over whiskey and steaks. And the point can be made that alcohol probably isn't the best accelerant to um, life and death problem solving. But the point is, is that it wasn't work to us, you know? Um, Zach expected us to think outside of the box. And he showed us how by initiating and exemplifying a hunger for knowledge. So we trained hard as hell and we played even harder. And I remember noticing just how different it was from the last squad that I was in. And I had to admit to myself that this is what it was supposed to be. This is what an infantry squad is supposed to be like. So we go through the workup and uh, we complete our pre-deployment leave. Zach leaves for Marja, Afghanistan as part of the advance party uh, just to, you know, get boots on the ground and kind of feed us some intel back and let us know what we're getting into. And uh, June 8th of 2010 rolls around, five days before the rest of us are set to deploy and meet him and the rest of the advance party in country. I'm uh, on my way to admin, uh, the office where all the pogues work, to uh, get some last-minute paperwork squared away with some of my boots. And I hear this voice, you know, off to the left, like, hey, Marine, where are you going? Uh, oh, turn around. It's my company first sergeant. Good afternoon, first sergeant. We're, uh, I'm taking these Marines over to admin. Like, nope, no, you're not. Get over to the gazebo right now. Okay, so... We cross over PT Road and we go to this tiny little gazebo that's sitting over there. And, uh, you know, it turns out the entire company was being recalled. Um, guys were coming in that were off or on leave or not in for the day. And it took about an hour or so, but eventually we got everybody over there. And we didn't all, like, nobody understood why. We just kind of thought, you no, know, well, somebody did something stupid. We're probably going to get our asses chewed or something like that. So we didn't really think much of it or anything. But eventually, after everybody shows up, uh, First Arm brings us all in, real informal-like, real close. And he says, uh, gents, there's no easy way to say this, so I'm just going to say it. Uh, we got word today that Sergeant Walters and Sergeant Shanfield were killed. And I remember him going on and saying something, but everything was just kind of drowned out at that point. Um, I was shocked. You know, I mean, none of us, none of us expected it to be him. And, you know, when you think of men being killed in combat or, or you think of yourself being killed in combat, which is normal, all men do before they go to war, you know, you, but you envision, Something that places all of you together, typically. You know, it plays out in your mind like, 
like seeing a buddy get shot in the face or, or chewed up by shrapnel and machine gun fire, or, you know, you see yourself in this fight and then an abrupt cut to black that, that tells your brain, Oh, guess I just got killed by an explosion. But I don't think anybody ever tries to prepare themselves for losing someone and then having no answers. You know, all we knew was that they were both killed by the same IED on the same patrol with another battalion. Now, the same one that we would relieve, uh, 1st Battalion, 6th Marines. And that night, you know, I got home and it hit me that I had to be a squad leader now. And that had a, a different sort of a shock to it. You know, maybe because we weren't actually there. Um, you know, all that was left now was was time to focus on everything that we didn't know. And, you know, but it, it, it showed me that one of the best parts about this culture is that, you know, when you suffer together and when you bleed together and you develop together and, and put aside all these petty differences to work with one another, it, it builds a unique bond between everyone. And it's moments like this that, that show you who your true friends are. Um, you know, I have my father and, and multiple team leaders from my last deployment call me and pour the necessary encouragement and advice into me that I needed in order to meet this challenge. And the next five days were one of the heaviest experiences that I've ever had. Um, you know, we traveled up to Dover Air Force Base to receive what was left of Zach and Derek and, and to meet Zach's family. And looking back on it, even ever after having been through combat, that experience of seeing the effect of a battlefield death on a mother is still one of the most sobering experiences of my life. It's just, it is different and, and better words to describe that are just simply beyond my abilities um, but, uh, you know, we went back and we made our final preparations and, and, and on the day we hopped on the buses, you know, we had this massive turnout and it's, it's normal for families to show up and, and, you know, see their, see their Marines off before they leave and stuff. But, you know, we had a lot of guys that had gotten out of the service after our last deployment that dropped everything. And came from all over the country to see us off. You know, there wasn't a single man in our battalion that was late or missing. Everyone was ready to go. And that said something to us. It steeled my nerves a little bit. You know, just examining the situation. Yeah, I had one of the best squads ever built at my back. And a network of men that understood what we were going to. And if I was going to get killed, then there was no stopping it. But I was in the best position possible to move forward into what turned out to be a very kinetic deployment. And while I made a lot of mistakes, it was this deployment that forced me to look at who I was versus where I wanted to be and decide that I had to grow. I had to reinvent my identity as a leader and as a man. And I always had Zach's example to help guide me in the right direction in the years after Marja. And that was what influenced my decision to re-enlist. 
You know, I wanted to go back to where he had come from and, and try and find that, that something extra that he had. You know, where did he get that little bit of extra iron that was in his soul? I wanted to know if I could really do this as a leader. And I wouldn't be able to move forward in my life without accepting that challenge head on. And at least knowing one way or the other. I wouldn't quit. You know, I followed Hannibal's example and I I wouldn't take no for an answer. I planted my flag. And I was prepared to die next to it if that's what it meant. And in those subsequent enlistments, I found myself teaching young infantrymen the same lessons that Zach had taught me. Which prepared me for where I am now as a dad. You know, I've, I've got a lot of conversations about Zach with my nine-year-old and, and my six-year-old. And the opportunities are there in, in these small but important interactions. Like, like when they don't want to read and, and I remind them of how he set me on that path. And they're like, oh. So that's why you wake up and read every morning, Dad. Yeah, man. So the influence passes from one generation on to the next. So as we close out this episode, let's go back to one of our earlier questions. How many of us quit at the first sign of adversity? You know, think about New Year's resolutions. This is an easy example. You know, going to the gym or eating right or limiting screen time. The list goes on and on and on and on. How many people say these things at the beginning of a year out of tradition as opposed to establishing it as their singular desire, believing that they can actually accomplish it, formulating a plan, and then accepting ahead of time that change won't come overnight? That any defeat that they experience will be temporary. In 1937, Napoleon Hill wrote Think and Grow Rich. One of the best books I've ever read. It's truly life-altering. And summarizing it very briefly and probably very poorly, Mr. Hill cites definite desire backed by belief carried out by careful planning and persistence is the path to turning dreams into reality. So I'm going to ask you, how different could our lives be if we cut impossible out of our vocabulary like Hannibal did? Think about that. That promotion that you think is guaranteed to one of your peers or that special type of relationship that you want with your wife or your kids or or that dream that's been buried in your soul for years. If you, if you just wage war on the concept of impossible, the way is now open for achievement. Belief, as Mr. Hill stated in his book all those years ago. See, Hannibal's men didn't have to believe in his dream. They just had to believe in his example. And he believed in his mission, his singular burning desire. And I'll leave you with this last observation. A couple of weeks back, I drove down to Starkville, Mississippi on business. About halfway through my journey, I passed an exit that marked a monument for the band Leonard Skinner. Now, I'm not the biggest Skinner fan on the planet, but it dawned on me that we have monuments to 
everything in this country. Like, that's how good we have it. What excuse do we have to simply float through life without any ambition or drive? And in that moment, the situation spoke to me, and I remembered the examples of men like Hannibal and Zach. And it reminded me of the responsibility that I have to live life to the absolute fullest. So I asked myself those critical questions all over again. What will your legacy be? Will you find your passion and pursue it to the ends of the earth? Or just accept normalcy? If it's one thing, one thing that these men say to us from beyond history, it's this. Let your example be the monument that illuminates the path for others long after your time. Speaking of time, thank you for spending yours here. I hope that you guys are getting as much out of this as I am. It really is great to be here and to share a few insights with you. You know, leave some comments, give some reviews. That way we can make this a better experience. And, and don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the podcast. Um, the next episode is going to be especially personal to me, and I promise you that you're not going to want to miss it. I'm, uh, I'm going to talk more about Zach and how his example guided me after his death and helped me develop into a better leader and a better man. And it's a special format. It's an interview for the Veterans Breakfast Club out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, conducted by a 29-year Marine infantry veteran named Brad Washabaugh. So stay tuned. Um, Friendly reminder, don't eat people, but still get savage and stay savage. Until next time, this is Stu Blackwell on the Warrior Legacy Podcast.